Welcome to Folkways, an auditory stroll through the rich and fascinating folklore of Britain and Ireland. The beliefs and culture of people who made this cluster of northerly islands their home. From music to psychogeography to what to do if you notice the devil following you to church. It's a long, strange trip and there are no guarantees you'll be home in time for dinner. Hello! Big up yourself for being here for season two, episode five, where we are continuing our exploration of the other world. This one's a pretty juicy one. We are delving into the liminal with part two, places between places. Enjoy. You're either here or you're there, up or you're down, in or you're out. It's either night or day, close or far away, you're loose or uptight, wrong or right. But what about when it's a little bit of both and therefore neither fully? What if you're not either here or you're there? First we had last month's episode talking about the dead doing the can-can and now this. That's it. I've had enough of this podcast. The next half an hour or so is dedicated to the liminal. Mist blanketing a field in the pregnant minutes before the sun rises. The animals of the night will soon be heading home, yet it is still not quite day. There's an electricity in the air. It feels, right now, just for a moment, like anything might be possible. And maybe it is. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 5, where we continue our exploration of the other world. This is Part 2, Places Between Places. This is a very important episode, and I'll no doubt be referencing it in future shows for many years to come. This is so because being fluent in the language of liminality is essential to the study of folklore. Liminal, from Latin lemen, meaning boundary or threshold. Succinctly put, we could say liminal spaces are those in between. There is a bridge taking you from one state to another, night to day, spring to summer, dreaming to wakefulness. You've left one state, you're sure you have, but the new one is still yet to take form. It's shadowy, elusive, it can't be touched. Yet, the door to the past has already closed. Limbo, no man's land. You feel apprehensive. In this moment, there's everything to play for. It's time to visit our magic mirror once more. You're back in the room. You look down and see those familiar wooden floorboards beneath your feet. It is once again dawn, a potent liminal time. You move towards the mirror once more, with more confidence than last time you were here. An image is already waiting for you. You see what looks like a hand that's half closed 
and emerging out of it, we can see a pair of dice. They're blurred, in motion. We can't see the number on the faces. This individual came into this game without much more than a tenor in their pocket, yet this role is about to make them extremely rich. Of course, they don't know that yet. In this moment, they've left their past life. They can't go back. The dice are already in motion. They've been shaken and are now emerging from the palm as they will. There's nothing this individual can do now to change their course. It shouldn't surprise us that folk rights are concerned with these liminal moments when we step from one life into another. As example, there are a great many to do with marriage. Indeed, this is why traditionally a groom carries the bride over the threshold of their home post-ceremony. They're united as they cross the physical boundary of their home, the setting of the domestic life together. Liminal states also exist in the calendar, generally when one season is giving way to another and they briefly shake hands. Major liminal players in folklore are Mayday or Beltane Bjortina, and a little festival you've probably never heard of before, Halloween or Samhain. We also have liminal times, dawn and dusk in particular, where we are between night and day. All I can tell you is, during twilight on May Day Eve in a folktale, you're f- There are also liminal places, and we'll get into all of this in more detail shortly. But can we ourselves be in certain liminal states in our personal lives? Surely not, I mean, it's just the boring, boring every day, nothing remarkable ever happens. In the 1908 Le de Passage, Arnold van Gennep developed the concept of the individual or community passing certain boundaries and thresholds. He made the case for a series of such dividing the path from birth to death. You look again at the mirror, the lucky hand gone, and now you see your own face looking back at you. For some reason, it startles you a little, a twinkle bright in your reflection's eyes. You've transformed so many times in your life that to you, it's not remarkable. Emotionally, clearly you're not the same as when you were five or 15, or hopefully you're not. We're all chasing the fountain of youth, downplaying the many initiations that a long life affords us. None of these initiations perhaps seem that special on their own. After all, you just get on with every day, you do what needs to be done. But each one represents a door closing behind us that doesn't readily open again. Some obvious ones might include your first day of school. That is an enormous one for a four or five year old. What about your first job, kiss, first time you have sex, leaving home for the first time, um, your first relationship, and certainly the first time you get your heart broken. There can be quite a profound divide between each state, and as youths, we often blithely saunter from one to the next, maybe unaware 
that there isn't a way back. Then there's your wedding day, um, the first time you become a parent. Again, that last one in particular is huge. It is the end of your life as you've so far known it. Some threshold moments are more universal, whilst others shift with time. One is the tradition of being given a key on your 21st birthday, representing essentially the keys to adulthood. You may know the rhyme, I've got the key to the door, never been 21 before. There's all sorts of delicious symbolism there. Unfortunately, this custom has mainly died away. A threshold moment that is unlikely to die away, however, is, as another example, menstruation. The first time of which no girl ever forgets. The alarming bright crimson, a different type of key. From here on, whispers start in your ear that, although now are unintelligible, throughout the coming years beckon you into the complex initiations of womanhood. Whilst writing this, I had the image from Valerie into Week of Wonders pop into my head the moment a drop of Valerie's blood falls on the petals of a pristine white flower. It occurred to me that this is an excellent example of a liminal film. We could say that many coming-of-age films fall into this category, although rather than cosy, nostalgic scenes, Valerie into Week of Wonders shows these burgeoning sexual forces as terrifying phantasmagorical beings capable of real damage. Pender's Fen is another unique film dealing with this coming-of-age liminality also. We could say that teenage years in general are an extended liminal state, with, for most of us, one or two years being particularly potent. For me, I see this as the younger end, around age 13, when you're suddenly told, you're not a child anymore, stop acting like a child, and you find yourself pulled from one room into a type of corridor with many doors leading off that are all shut to you. We're not sure what's expected of us anymore, but we realise the rules have changed. We linger awkwardly around, waiting for a hand to emerge from one door and pull us through. Threshold moments are generally seen as being in the first half of life, but that's not necessarily true. As we get older, the initiations are less concentrated, perhaps, but in some ways they can loom larger. As teenagers, we seem to be in a permanent state of transformation. Our bodies constantly ducking and diving and reaching, changes constant, our day-to-day lives as fluid as our bodies. But as we get older and maybe we get more accustomed to a certain standard of living, change can be quite alarming and we might doubt our abilities in a way that could have been quite foreign to us in younger years. These shifts of later life might include the death of a loved one, perhaps our parents or partner, completely changing career paths, having to start again, um, the breakdown of a marriage, signing that divorce paper, 
It is the ending of a life you thought was certain. You're back at the crossroads again, forced with a push to take that first step in a new direction, with no idea what lies over the inky horizon. Each time we take a step out of our comfort zone, challenge ourselves, in some small way we are redrawing the boundaries of our reality. In the mirror, now see a key liminal experience of your life being reflected back. Perhaps it's one on the list I just mentioned, but it might well be something completely unique to you. An event that shifted you out of one state and into another. See yourself now, in between the two. Why do you think that these liminal states are so prevalent in folklore? In particular, visits to the other world or meeting otherworldly beings? Note any thoughts you have now before we get into it. I'm going to read you a short Welsh tale collected by Wirt Sykes in his 19th century British Goblins. This is another text from this time period to go along with William Botterell and Lady Jane Wilde that we looked at in the last episode. I've got no idea why Sykes' book is called British Goblins since it's solely about Welsh law. I can only assume it might have been some kind of a marketing issue. I'm going to get into my great love for this publication at another time, but for now you'll find a link to it in the show notes. Highly, highly recommended. In the mirror, you now see the entrance to a cave. It looks like it's twilight, late autumn. You then see a young man holding a lamp, walking determined straight into the entrance. This is the story of Yolo Up You. In North Wales, there is a famous cave which is said to reach from its entrance on the hillside under a thousand streams, many a league of mountain, marsh and moor, under the almost unfathomable wells that, though now choked up, once supplied Sycarth, the fortress of Glynduity, all the way to Chirk Castle. Tradition said that whoever went within five paces of its mouth would be drawn into it and lost that the peasants dwelling near it had a thorough respect for this tradition, was proved that all around the dangerous hole the grass grew as thick and as rank as in the wilds of America or some unapproached ledge of the Alps. Both men and animals feared the spot. A fox, with a pack of hounds in full cry at its tail, once turned short round on approaching the cave, with its hair all bristled and fretted like frostwork with terror, and then it ran into the middle of the pack as if anything earthly, even an earthly death, was a relief. And the dogs in pursuit of this fox all declined to seize it 
on account of the phosphoric smell and gleam of its coat. Elias Ap Evan, who happened one fair night to stagger just upon the entrance of the forbidden space, was so frightened at what he saw and heard that he arrived at home perfectly sober, the only interval of sobriety, morning, noon or night, Elias had been afflicted with for upwards of twenty years. I do enjoy the phrasing afflicted with sobriety there. One misty Halloween, Yolo Apu, the fiddler, determined to solve the mysteries of the Ogoff or cave, provided himself with an immense quantity of bread and cheese and seven pounds of candles and ventured in. He never returned, but long, long afterwards, at the twilight of another Halloween, an old shepherd was passing by when he heard a faint burst of melody dancing up and down the rocks above the cave. As he listened, the music gradually moulded itself in something like a tune, though it was a tune the shepherd had never heard before. It sounded as if it were being played by some jolting fiend, so rugged was its rhythm, so repeated its discordant groans. Now there appeared at the mouth of the Ogoff, the cave, a figure well known to the shepherd by remembrance. It was dimly visible, but it was Yolo up Hugh, one could see that at once. He was capering madly to the music of his own fiddle, with a lantern dangling at his breast. Suddenly, the moon shone full on the cave's yellow mouth, and the shepherd saw poor Yolo for a single moment, but it was distinctly and horribly. His face was pale as marble, and his eyes stared fixedly and deathfully, whilst his head dangled loose and unjointed on his shoulders. His arms seemed to keep his fiddlestick in motion without the least amount of effort. The shepherd saw him a moment on the verge of the cave, and then, still capering and fiddling, vanished like a shadow from his sight. But the old man was heard to say, he seemed as if he had slipped into the cave in a manner quite different from the step of a living and a willing man. He was dragged inwards like the smoke up the chimney or the mist at sunrise. Years elapsed. All hopes and sorrows connected with poor Yolo had not only passed away, but were nearly forgotten. The old shepherd had long lived in a parish at a considerable distance among the hills. One evening, whilst at church, the shepherd who had seen Yolo and his fellow parishioners were shivering in their seats as the clerk was beginning to light the church, when a strange burst of music, starting suddenly from beneath the aisle, threw the whole congregation into confusion, and then it passed faintly along to the farther end of the church and died gradually away, till at last it was impossible to distinguish it from the wind that was careering and wailing through almost every pillar of the old church. The shepherd immediately recognised this to be the tune Yolo had played at the mouth of the Ogoff. The parson of the parish, the connoisseur in music, took it down from the old man's whistling, and to this day, if you go to the cave at twilight on Hallow's Eve and put your ear to the aperture, you may hear the tune, Farewell Ned Pugh, 
as distinctly as you may hear the waves roar in a seashell. And it is said that in certain nights in a leap year, a star stands opposite the farther end of the cave and enables you to view all through it and see Yolo and its other inmates. That was a good one, wasn't it? If, whilst listening, you clicked your fingers at Halloween, Twilight and the location, the cave, give yourself a pat on the back. Yolo goes into the cave and subsequently disappears on Halloween, is then seen by an acquaintance on Halloween and the story ends by telling us that even today, if you pass the cave on this date, you may hear eerie music coming from within. Okay, but why? I mean, this detail was just added because it sounds cool, right? Twilight at Halloween, woo! It does sound cool, but where did the idea first come from? Where is the source of the river? Why is a certain date more significant than, say, the 18th of February? It's just arbitrary, right? To answer this question, we have to think about the old agricultural year. We divide the calendar firstly by the solstices and equinoxes, but Celtic calendars, uh, primarily, although not exclusively, also note the cross-quarter dates between these Imolch, Beltane or Bultana, Lunasa and Samhain. So what? The more we divorce ourselves from the production of our own food, the less these dates mean to many of us. But traditionally, the dates dividing the calendar into its lighter and darker parts held a real significance, and as we've seen on different episodes so far, often had a decent dose of pageantry to accompany them. As Hilda Davidson writes in the introduction to Boundaries and Thresholds, papers from the Catherine Briggs Club, Calendar boundaries give the opportunity to seek for omens and signs to indicate whether the next period of time will be blessed with good fortune. And these are marked by not only feasting and exchange of hospitality, but sometimes by violence and mayhem, the permitted overturning of customary order during the time of transition, creating a period of confusion before normal living is restored. Participants may put on disguises, appearing as fantastic beings, strangers from another world, or as birds and animals. These are liminal moments that progress us from one seasonal state into the next. And whilst we see different groups of people at different times celebrating these in often very different ways, the importance of these lighter and darker aspects of the calendar remain. Taking Davidson's line, the permitted overturning of customary order during the transition, it shouldn't surprise us that these dates, the large variety in their celebration, are often firmly wedded to the uncanny. If you listen to my episodes on Midsummer, you'll know a bunch of customs associated with the sun's zenith. But let's think about the cross-quarter days for a bit, those in between the solstices and equinoxes. Folk tales are often preoccupied with May Day, 
or Beltane Bultana and Halloween Samhain, two dates which are opposite from each other in the calendar. Midsummer certainly too does get a look in, but Beltane and Samhain are surely the winners in terms of their hosting a miscellany of bizarre goings-on. In Wales, the setting of our story, these three dates in May, June and October are Ispiridnods or Spirit Nights, where contact with the other side is said to be possible. Beltane and Samhain, or Callan May and Callan Gaeav in Welsh, were traditionally seen as the gateways to either summer or winter. Spring and autumn are beginning to lose their power as a new crackling force begins sweeping in, and it is these gateways that have a particular potency. Something moving in the mirror catches your eye, and you see waves at a coastline energetically pushing in towards the shore at speed. The tide has turned, the water now picking up momentum as it heads back towards you. Anyone who's been caught out by a tide suddenly coming in knows its danger. It happens faster than you think, with a huge amount of energy. I liken the power of the incoming and outgoing ocean tides as, respectively, those of the festivals either side of midsummer, with Beltane and Samhain times of a special force. All is in motion as you are swept along. High tide, therefore, would be midsummer, a seeming moment of calm before it all kicks off again. A quick meditation on this analogy helps us to grasp the different, though interlinked, significance of the sun's zenith versus the festivals that lead up and then fall away from it. For Samhain Halloween, though a lot of untruths have been written about it, this old gateway to winter does naturally lend itself to contemplations of the other side, the natural world around us displaying glorious rich colours before beginning to die off. Geoffrey Gantz suggests that Samhain in Ireland was regarded as a time of unusual supernatural power because of the number of stories set at the feast in which humans are attacked or approached by deities, fairies or monsters. He also notes the sheer number of legendary kings who were slain at this time. The astute amongst you will have noticed that last month's two Irish tales also mentioned this time period. In November Eve, the tale of Hugh King, it begins with, It is esteemed a very wrong time to be about on November Eve, minding any business, for the fairies have their flitting then and do not like to be seen or watched. And all the spirits come to meet them and help them. But mortal people should keep at home or they will suffer for it. For the souls of the dead have power over all things on that one night of the year. November Eve being, of course, the 31st of October. The second Irish tale, The Dance of the Dead, tells us that mortals need to watch their backs, not only this one night, but through the whole of November. Quote, It is especially dangerous to be out on the last night of November, 
for it is the closing scene of the revels, the last night when the dead have leave to dance on the hill with the fairies. The second story also mentions a time, the woman coming home at the hour of the dead. The tale of Yolo Up Hugh also mentions a time, twilight, that between night and day. In a folk tale, you'll often find that encounters with the otherworldly occur at either dawn or dusk, or if not, the witching hour or hour of the dead might well be mentioned. This last one is generally thought to be midnight, although historically this is also recorded as being between 3 and 4 a.m. So for the tale of Yolo Up Hugh, we've got a date, a time, and then we've got the location, the Ogof, the cave. What's going on here? Liminal places are generally those that can be seen as edges, where one type of landscape meets another. We've got caves, where open land meets what might be vast underground tunnels, shorelines, land meeting sea, hedges or other boundaries, one space meeting another, and hills, earth meeting sky. You might be able to think of some more yourself. Black Shuck is famed for haunting coastlines, side roads, crossroads and hedgerows. Mermaids and selkies enchant mortals at the water's edge, suggesting to men and women a life away from the humdrum of the everyday, the secrets of those watery depths beckoning in the moonlight. There's also an untold amount of lore regarding hills and mountains, and generally that they are the home of the fairies, the Tulithteg, the She. Did you notice that in both last month's Irish stories, the hills played a role? Hugh King, after his uh, slightly unusual evening, wakes up in a fairy wrath on the top of a hill, whilst in the other, the lady is approached by the young man and she's told to look directly at a nearby hill. She does so to see the dancing company who later surround her. And then there is the crossroads, probably the most famous place of all for a mortal to be accosted by an otherworldly being. Even with relatively recent stories, such as the famous tale of Robert Johnson, where here he was given his musical prowess by the devil. The tale of Yolo Up Hugh has, therefore, at least three liminal references, four if you count the nice bit about the star at the end. Whilst there's no doubt that certain stories might be peppered with these references for poetic effect, and why wouldn't you? I mean, you know, layer them up. Midnight at Halloween while standing on one foot at the crossroads just sounds good. What I've tried to highlight in this episode, however, is the importance of the between state and why seeing it as a gateway might be useful when considering its prevalence in otherworldly tales. My humble suggestion is that it is, on the whole, far from arbitrary, but rather points to a different, slightly more flexible view of our place in the world, or worlds. 
And if you feel spurred on by this episode to dabble in liminal states in the hope of vanishing into a grove of trees a la Dale Cooper and Twin Peaks, I'd like to remind you that Yolowap Hugh is said to still be trapped in that cave in North Wales, forced to continue playing the fiddle, head hanging limply with a deathly visage forever. I'd urge you caution. I'd hate to be telling a tale about you in the future. I wonder how it might go. You look into the mirror again to see a crossroads, the back of Robert Johnson walking away, a spring in his step. The image fizzes with static like an old TV screen. The interference decreases and the lines begin to rearrange themselves once more until you see your own face looking back at you. You feel a bit relieved. Something shiny catches your eye at the foot of the mirror. You bend down to see a large bronze key about the length of your hand. You pick it up, for it then to disappear, although you can still feel it. Startled, you jump slightly, goosebumps rising on your arm as you see the key gradually materialising again between your fingers. Nonplussed, you run both hands over it. Ugh, what are you going to do with this? You leave the strange room, disappearing key in hand. You guess it'll have to go in the shoebox with the bone. You've been listening to Folkways, the Folklore of Britain and Ireland podcast, written and produced by myself, Ashley. Music by Big Big Sky. Find him on socials and streaming platforms at big.big.sky. Additional research for this episode by Tamsin Howard. Be sure to connect with the show on Instagram at Folkways Channel. If you'd like the Folkways tree to grow and bear fruit, please consider watering its roots. This episode was made possible by the Friends of Folkways. Friends are excellent humans who chip in to help me afford the books I buy for each episode. If you think preserving this work is a worthwhile endeavour, you can join the Friends from only £2 a month, in return receiving instrumental soundtracks, letters in the post and coming soon meditations sharing it with a pal or leaving a good rating wherever you're listening to this also helps the show to grow thank you may the gods of the soil sky and links of your ancestral line bless you me again i would like to apologize for this episode being a bit late I normally try to upload near the beginning of the month, however, I have been going through some major liminal experiences of my own. It has definitely been the most intense month of my life for a long time, but I think I've made it, which is good. Therefore, this month's almanac is a little late. I'm still going to include it at the end of this episode, as lots is still relevant, especially observing the night's sky. However, if you've uh, folded your arms in dismay at this, 
I'd like to invite you to subscribe to Folkway's YouTube channel. There'll be a link in the show notes where I upload the almanac as an individual video near the beginning of each month. I then attach this to whichever podcast episode is nearest. But like I said, this month it is a little bit delayed. So I hope you'll forgive me. I think you will. I just sense that you're that kind of person. It's now time to tune into Folkways FM for August 2022's Almanac. The ship is still in Ravenglass in the Lake District, as far as I know. Apparently one of the staff members got some summer work washing dishes in the Ratty Arms pub, or so I've been told. They recommend the garlic mushrooms as a starter, if you're passing. So without further ado, let's try and pick them up. Late August, given heavy rain and sun, for a full week the blackberries would ripen. At first, just one, a glossy purple clot amongst others, red-green hard as a knot. You ate that first one, and its flesh was sweet. Like thickened wine, summer's blood was in it, leaving stains upon the tongue and lust for picking. The red ones inked up, and that hunger sent us out with milk cans, pea tins, jam pots, where briars scratched and wet grass bleached our boots. Round hayfields, cornfields, and potato drills we trekked and picked until the cans were full, until the tinkling bottom had been covered with green ones, and on top big dark blobs burned like a plate of eyes. Our hands were peppered with thorn pricks, our palms sticky as bluebeards, We hoarded the fresh berries in the burr. But when the bath was filled, we found a fur, a rat-grey fungus glutting on our cash. The juice was stinking too. Once off the bush, the fruit fermented, the sweet flesh would turn sour. I always felt like crying. It wasn't fair that all the lovely canfuls smelt of rot. Each year, I hoped they'd keep new that they would not. When considering poetry, I often think of this line of Heaney's. When a poem rhymes, he commented, when a form generates itself, when a metre provokes consciousness into new postures, it is already on the side of life. August, derived from the Latin word augur, meaning to increase. As a name, it had the meaning esteemed or venerable, and was a title given to Roman emperors. Indeed, the month is named after Rome's first emperor, Augustus. In Welsh, Aust, Cornish, Misest. In Irish, Scots Gaelic, and Manx, the month is named after the festival Lunasa, which we will get to in a minute. In Irish, Lunasa, Scots Gaelic, and Lunastil. Manx Lunasty. In Manx, it's also known as Tajagd Awad. Manx often has several names for each month, which I assure you isn't confusing at all. And in Old English, before we got all Romaned, this month was known as Weodmanath, the month of weeds. However, not solely in the way we use the word now as a nuisance plant, but rather pointing to the lush greenery that abounds. 
The beginning of August sees the first of the calendar's harvest festivals. This is Lamas, or Lunasa, as we just spoke about, festival of the first fruits. The first grain has been harvested, milled, and from this, the very first loaf baked. This first bread has all sorts of significance. Up until this point, we relied on last year's grain. Indeed, July was often called Lean July, or in Irish, Uolnukabosta, July of the Cabbage. Though the natural world is lush around us, harvest is still to come, and last year's grain supplies are done. The harvesting of this year's first grain to make this loaf, which you hold tightly in your hands, means, essentially, things are looking good. Your hard labour is paid off, and your chances of making it through till the next harvest are greatly increased. No small feat at all. Anyone who's eaten anything they've grown themselves knows the satisfaction, how you pay far more attention to each mouthful. Well, if you knew this mouthful suggested that not only your family, but perhaps the wider community had a decent chance of survival through until the next year, how much sweeter might that bite be? Rites included a solemn cutting of the first of the corn, of which an offering would be made by bringing it up to a high place and burying it, as Moya McNeil's celebrated the Festival of Lunasa makes clear. There is a good deal of evidence of this type of ritual in Ireland, also on the Isle of Man, where people primarily gathered on hills or beside lakes and rivers. In the Scottish Highlands, the rites were quite different, however, and they seemed to focus on renewing the protection over their homes and cattle that was started at the beginning of summer, with rowan crosses being put over doors. Despite the difference in customs, which are important, and we sometimes see diminished or ignored, the significance of the first grain is still hard to miss. The Anglo-Saxons called this date Loafmas, which became Lamas. We often now see Lunasa and Lamas used interchangeably as names for this time. So how do we know the Anglos were in on it too? So the date of Lamas was named in the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, quote, the same summer betwixt Lamas and Midsummer. It also made an appearance in the early English text, the Red Book of Derby. As was made clear here, the first ripe cereals were reaped and baked into bread, which was consecrated at church on that day. We find a delightful Anglo-Saxon charm, which advised the splitting of the sacred first bread into four pieces, and the crumbling of each in the four corners of the barn, to bless the grain that was about to arrive here. Into more modern times, the significance of this date has remained. It was adopted into the Christian year as smooth as honey, and of course, you'll still find First Harvest-inspired ceremonies, the church happily using the term Lamas. On my Buy Me A Coffee page, you'll find a great video of a professor and a vicar discussing the celebration, very much worthy of your time. Speaking in more general terms now, first harvest rites up until relatively recently did often contain certain themes, 
we've looked at the first loaf, but how the fields were reaped was also given attention. What we might call the spirit of the harvest was considered. Through various rites we can see this spirit was believed to dwell in the fields and as the reapers continued their work cutting, 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 the spirit was forced to retreat to the ever-diminishing remains. In Hertfordshire, at the end of the reaping, there used to be a ceremony called crying the mare. While harvesting the fields, the reapers would leave a small patch uncut and tie up the stalks, calling the result a mare. When the harvest was complete in that field, they took turns cutting down the mare, then divided into two teams and sang around. First, I have here. What have you? A mare. What will you do with her? We'll send her to... And then they named the next farmer to do the reaping. The mare would be passed to each farmer in turn until every field had been reaped. The last farmer would then keep the mare through the winter. In Shropshire, the custom is similar. The farmer who finishes his harvest last and who therefore cannot send the mare to anyone else is said to keep her all winter. And in Ireland, we certainly see last sheaf rites also. The final bundle of grain left standing in the field was ceremoniously plaited before being cut. Reapers would at times stand back and throw their hooks at it to cut it, sometimes being blindfolded and spun around before doing so to add to the hilarity. What could go wrong? The cutting of this last sheaf was met with great jubilation and cheering, and the lucky reaper who managed to cut it was often showered with drops of whiskey or water before hosting a Harvest Home celebratory feast, which marked the end of the reaping to which all were invited, and which had the last sheaf as its ceremonial centrepiece. And thank you to the Folklore Podcast at University College Dublin for that information. If you woke up in Galway on the 1st of August, the sun rose at 5.52 and set at 21.31. Glasgow, sun rose at 5.21 and set at 21.23. And Guildford, the sun rose at 5.26 and set at 20.49. Unfortunately, we've lost an hour's daylight since this time last month. The moon is full on Thursday the 11th of August and will be slipping away until the new moon on Saturday the 27th of August. This 11th full moon has been known across these islands as the Dispute Moon, Lynx Moon, Grain Moon or Lightning Moon. The Milky Way is now running up the eastern side of the sky where Cassiopeia may be found within it high in the northeast. And talking of the Milky Way, if you enjoy a cup of tea, why not treat yourself to a celestial cuppa? Lying low above the southern horizon is the constellation of Sagittarius, home to a well-known asterism or pattern of stars called the teapot. Under good sky conditions, our home galaxy, the Milky Way, appears as steam rising out of the spout of the teapot, with the centre of the galaxy lying to the upper right tip of the spout. 
the super famous Perseids meteor shower can be spotted this month, known for their spectacular display during the warm nights of summer. Circle the 12th to the 13th of August in your diaries when they'll be at their peak, perhaps reaching as many as 100 meteors per hour. In some Catholic countries, they're known as the Tears of St. Lawrence because they're visible on the date of his martyrdom. Those who are on the ball will have noted this is just after the date of the full moon, therefore conditions will be far from ideal to spot the showers. However, uh, don't be discouraged from heading outside and taking a peek. Taking inspiration from good old gardener's world, let's look at some jobs in the garden. So you can use net or fleece to protect blackberries and autumn raspberries from the birds. So hardy crops such as landcress, rocket and corn salad for winter pickings. Harvest fresh herbs and hang them up to dry, then store in jars, or here's a brilliant one, freeze them in ice cubes for winter use. Genius! For foraging, this month you can find firstly blackberries of course, um, crabapple, elderberry, hazelnut and rowan berries. The rowan tree is also known as mountain ash or in Old Celtic, a name which translates as wizard's tree, reflecting its long association with magic and witches. Rowans were once planted to protect farm cottages from roaming witches, and can still be found around many farmyards. Your challenge this month is to do some stargazing. I know we mentioned it earlier, but with, um, how completely effing nuts the world is right now, i.e. you will eat the bugs, I'd like to invite you to head out into your garden or balcony with a chair or go for a late night stroll, take a flask of tea or something stronger out with you. There are brilliant stargazing apps now as I'm sure you know, so if you haven't downloaded one give it a go or just do what I do which is try to guess. This is a grounding thing to do. If we don't look after ourselves, how can we be of use to anyone else? So look after yourself. Chippers, get the butter out.